Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 74, with Brian Lindstrom. And welcome to episode 74 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. There's actually no skip in the episode numbers this week, you may have noticed, as has been the standard since the launch of the Makers of Sport community. The halftime shows are now private for community members only. Anyhow, uh, I did want to get the episodes back on an even number to schedule for to schedule and plan for an episode 100 in a few months. I have some special things planned for that. Uh, so in the meantime, if you did want to learn more about the community, you can sign up at makersofsport.com slash community. If you listened to the at last episode, you heard me announce Sloan Kelly, Senior Digital Content Director of the PGA Tour, was going to be joining us for this next episode. Unfortunately, due to travel, we needed to push Sloan back to the next episode as she has been on the road, being that golf season is in full force. However, I am very happy to call an audible here and bring in a gentleman who I've had on the waiting list to interview for quite some time. The very talented Brian Lindstrom is joining us today. During the day, Brian is an art director for Trek Bicycle, where he manages a team of designers creating brand and product standards, seasonal campaigns, and more, as well as being responsible for the Trek Pro Team's needs, which include visual identities, rider kits, custom bike visuals, and collateral. In addition, on the side, during Brian's probably little free time, he freelances under his company, New Barrick Design Company, uh, which is a full-service design firm, as well as creating side projects such as the Bases Loaded series, an illustrative print collection created in a rough and hand-drawn style exploring the great American pastime through storytelling and graphic design. Also, Brian founded 50 Built, which is a resourceful journal that facilitates interviews or videos, highlights makers, reviews, and sells American-made products with a quality over quantity mantra. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for taking the time to come aboard. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. So you're a pretty busy man. <laughs> yeah, busy. It's uh, it's always good to be busy, right? We're all we're all busy doing the things we love to do. Hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I, I love the maker mentality. It's it's a big theme for the show. Uh, it's kind of got the show kind of has an entrepreneurial undertone and looking doing research for this episode like I research all of my guests you're you know you have so many side projects and and those things just get me extremely excited so I'm definitely looking forward to talking about those by the way I just noticed you were up in Cincinnati for reasons that we'll get into shortly but I wish I would have known I would have popped up there to hang out for a little bit I'm only about an hour from downtown Cincinnati okay cool very cool yeah no um I, uh, like you said, we can talk about more later. I went last year to the show in person. This year, I did not make it physically there. So, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it's a really cool community they got there. 
Yeah, they have a great, great design scene. Let's uh, let's kind of give listeners uh, a bit of a deeper dive into yourself and your career. I, I, I mentioned that I gave a, a brief intro, uh, but why don't you take this time to give listeners a little more of your story? How did a, a California-born creative end up in the upper Midwest? Yeah, yeah for sure. So uh, I was kind of born into a, a Chicago family. I was actually born in uh, Chicago land, um, but was uh, transplanted at a young age out to the West Coast. Uh, I like to call it the wild, wild West Coast of California. Mm-hmm. So um, it was uh, it was a really cool mix. I you know I wouldn't trade it. You get you get a lot of um, people from a certain area who never leave that area or maybe don't have a lot of uh, a flavor of um, what's going on in different parts of the country and especially the Midwest where uh, the people on the coast considered a flyover um, area. Um, I've always had a great respect for the Midwest. Um, because we'd come back here to visit family and whatnot, uh, come back for Cubs games and Bears games, all that kind of good stuff. So, grew up in California doing the, um, you know, the California thing uh, with a brainwash mentality for all Chicago sports. So I never really adopted many of the California teams and sports. Um, went to undergrad school in California and um, didn't really look anywhere outside of the state because at that point I was a California kid, surf, snowboard, skate, all that kind of stuff and couldn't ever imagine myself living away from the coast and the waves. Um, Graduated from Cal State Fullerton and uh, went on, did some freelance and contract work for some agencies and at that point kind of um, directed myself towards looking for some in-house jobs um, that I thought that I'd maybe prefer. Uh, so I took a job at Oakley, was my first professional design job, I guess you'd say, and uh, worked there for three-ish years or so. I guess we can probably go into more detail of what I did there you know, a little bit later. So moved on from there and started my own design studio, something that I've always wanted to do and uh, something that I continue to do today, working for clients. I know it's it's always really cool these days to you know ditch the clients and do your own thing, but um, I actually really enjoy the client aspect of of running the studio, and uh, it was mostly surf, skate, action, sports stuff, uh, because that was where all the connections were. I grew up in working and managing, and then now become my one of my number one clients, uh, a surf shop in Dana Point, California, called Infinity Surfboards. So, to me, they're the ultimate um, the ultimate surf shop, mom and pop. Uh, run made in the USA, uh, been around since the 70s, and um, so had a, had a huge uh, influence on my direction in life for sure. Um, so worked there on an, uh, let's see, 99 to 2005. Took the job at Oakley around 2004ish, five-ish, and uh, actually went back there to manage and do all the design work, uh, which they had never really had anybody focusing on the design of the shop after Oakley. And uh, when I opened up my own design studio, so it was a pretty fun transition back to doing your own studio work and working for you know surf companies that you've always admired and loved, and you know a lot of companies that I had purchased as a buyer for the shop before, and um, so you know pretty intimate with the uh, the brands and whatnot. Right. Um, and then. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, a few years back, running my own design studio, I knew that that's something I wanted to do. And uh, I'd always wanted to go to grad school. And I don't know how this got in my head. 
Um, you don't need it for design. You don't even need an undergrad degree for design. So why I uh, had this desire, I can't recall the instance that I wanted to do it, but it was always a goal to go back, get my master's, MFA, whatever, in um, design with an emphasis in printmaking. I'd always loved printmaking, screen printing. I actually had uh, traveled back to Chicago uh, to take some screen printing classes with Screwball Press. Uh, Steve Walters in Chicago, who's uh, referred to anyway as the godfather of screen printing um, in that area or in the country. I don't, I don't know, really know his extent, his reach, but um, so that was really cool. And uh, yeah, I um, applied to universities. I applied to art schools. And in the end, it came down to a few different uh, schools to choose from. And for reasons mostly that the program was super flexible and um, allowed you to kind of do what you wanted to do and uh, take classes at other um, colleges at the university, I guess you'd say, so at other schools within the school, mm -hmm. um, I chose University of Wisconsin. And uh, I traveled to a few of the schools to visit, and when I landed in the Midwest and started driving north to Wisconsin, which I don't, I can probably count how many times I've been to Wisconsin on one finger, uh, at the time, it just it felt it felt good. It felt right. I still had some cousins and grandma uh, in the Chicago area, so for a reason, chose UW, and um, that's where you see uh, I got really in all the side projects, bases loaded, fifty built, um, and had kind of formed a a good relationship with the creative director at the time at Trek Bikes. Um, before I came back to Wisconsin and uh, had interviewed a few times for other jobs and kind of decided I wanted to really finish my graduate degree. And uh, just so happened when I was wrapping up the MFA show that there was a really cool opportunity at Truck and um, it's a killer company and, and worth a, a deeper look at. So I I took the chance and it's it's been great. Very cool. Well, I want to circle back to grad school a little bit. You, you obviously went and got a BFA in graphic design. And then you mentioned going to the University of Wisconsin. And I was checking out your LinkedIn. You got an MA in design and printmaking, and then also an MFA in designer as entrepreneur. And myself, I'm a fine arts major. I've got a Bachelor of Fine Arts in art with an emphasis in graphic design. So I'm familiar with the content of the MA, obviously, but I'm curious if you could kind of tell me a little bit more about this designer as entrepreneur MFA. Uh, I mean, in addition, were you also ever curious about actually teaching? Because you mentioned that you didn't have, you didn't know exactly why you wanted to go to design school, but also, or to uh, grad school, but you know, that seems to be a common path uh, for people that go and get their MFAs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and thanks for the reminder. Um, I think that was the, the reason why that uh, I do always. I've always loved. I think that's why I love my position right now as an art director. Is you really feel that you have a a team and an influence and opportunity to teach and uh, mentor. And obviously, the people I work with are equals and just as talented or more more uh, talented than myself. But uh, you know, in that university level, you just we all have those teachers that we look up to and that we can pinpoint the people who really made a difference in our lives, you know, and also our careers. And to be able to have that opportunity, I'd, yeah, I'd love to be able to do that someday. Um, teaching and, uh, yeah, it's talking about design. I mean, what a, what a cool job. Talk about design and help, help people out. So that was definitely a, uh, a reason for going back. And, um, I, the, 
so what I'm going back to when I said that it's it was kind of a self-made um, curriculum and mm-hmm. uh, degree. The designer's entrepreneur isn't a actual path that they set there. You know, I, it could have been anything. So the the first year was bases loaded. It was heavy printmaking. I was screen printing all the banners um, right on the felt fabric, and um, so it was a really intensive printmaking uh, MA. And then I moved on to the MFA, and I focused a little bit less on the actual making of the things. I had posters printed. Um, I had frames manufactured. So I was kind of sourcing out the making part. Obviously, I designed and created the actual content in all the posters, but it was about the bigger picture, creating an entire business. And uh, that goes from business plan to um, you know figuring out capital needed, uh, getting out there and doing all the dirty work, that, you know, um, not just design and launching this thing, creating a ton of content, six months of content before I ever launched it. And so there was a nice, huge library of, of things uh, for people to go back and, and look at and hopefully build some reader loyalty uh, right off the bat. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was creating, it was writing the business plan. It was having the shows. It was selling, having an online shop at the time. And um, it was fun being able to work with designers who I like, Dan Casaro and Ryan Katrina, um, Evan Stremke. They all kind of did some designs for 50 Belt that were for sale in the shop. And uh, so it was just kind of like a nice mix-up of different passions that I have, creating what I thought is you know pretty cool design and uh, the Made in America theme and then working with other designers who I really respect. And people people noticed it, you know, and that was something that was missing in the Made in the USA uh, arena. And it seems like 2012 was really a pivotal year because there were quite a few really good Made in the USA companies that started right around that time, 11, 12, 13, and um, that did have better design and user interface and layout and you know some sort of real brand feeling. Um, Makers Row is one of those companies. Yep, I'm um, familiar with familiar with them. Yeah, so it was uh, it was fun, but people noticed it. You know, they're like, hey, you know, we really like the 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 thought that there actually was thought put into the design of this made in the USA thing instead of it being a website from the 1990s with just a ton of blue links. You know, and, <laughs> oh right, yeah. Know? Yeah, totally, and and I definitely I, I I definitely want to do a deeper dive in that, but I, to kind of circle back a little bit, it mm-hmm. appears from your history that you've always been kind of a brand and consumer product guy. I'm curious, what is it you did mention briefly about kind of getting into advertising just a little, but what was it about the consumer brand and product world that was so attractive to you? Uh, you know, in comparison to say going and working at uh, an advertising agency? So I guess the thing I've really enjoyed about in-house and then kind of doing my own studio on the side is that uh, I like to be really a part of the people that you're talking with, whether it's their product, an entire brand, a logo, you know, and getting to know them on a first name basis talking to them directly, not talking through an account person or a suit. Yeah, um, you're, cl- you're like, closer to the problem, essentially. Yeah, you're, you're totally close to the problem. And, you know, the little experience that I had um, at an agency right out of uh, school, it was just like there were a couple layers between me and, and you know, I was, I was an entry level, so what do I, I'm, I didn't expect to be at the table. But, um, you know, as you get through your career, you just, I've really appreciated the fact of, in-house, both at you know Oakley and at Trek, um, you get to 
you can be as ambitious as you want. You can be the guy that, a girl that comes in nine to five or, you know, whatever and, and leaves, or you can, you know, dig a little deeper, really get passionate about the product that you're, you're into. And I buy, I buy into both of those companies and I'll, I'll still wear Oakley's forever. And because I believe in what they do. And when the time comes that I'm not a truck anymore, I'll be riding a truck bike because I believe in, I believe in the company and the people and, and getting to know the company that much um, it wouldn't just be any product and consumer good that I'd be into, but I really like working with and for, um, I guess that's, I mean, it's nothing unique, right? We all, we all do. We all like to work for stuff that we enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, so Oakley, I would say as an outsider is a, a design driven company. I mean, they have, they have a team on dribble even. Well, during your time there at Oakley, you, I noticed from your LinkedIn, you worked on a variety of different products. Can you talk about maybe some of the things that you did, or a uh, variety of different projects, sorry. Uh, sure. can, you, can you talk about some of the things that you worked on there? And I'm also curious, did you cross paths with Mark Hemian while you were there? Mark Hemian. He's, um, a, he, he's, a, uh, he's a digital designer. He's, uh, he's a Google guy, I think. Um, okay. I mean, this is... This is uh this is gonna make for good radio while I sit here and Google, <laughs> Google Mark Hemian. but uh people people can just deal with it. Uh, anyway, so Mark Mark Hemian, um he he used to be with um, Kevin Rose uh, from the guy that founded Dig. They founded okay. this company. Mark Hemian is a design was a designer at YouTube. Now he just recently launched this new thing called Design Studio or Design Inc. Uh, actually, is what it's called. And he was a UX guy at Oakley. I guess long story short. So I don't know if you did any work in that world and maybe cross paths with some people over there or not. Yeah, it's funny. the um, The design groups at Oakley are at the time they're uh, it's different now, but they were really really separate. Um, so I was in the product design area. So uh, uh, I got to correct that I guess nowadays because. Product design People think, being a yeah. physical product. It's, <laughs> yeah. I, I am a web idiot, so anything I say from here on out has nothing to do with me doing web <laughs> or user interface uh, or experience. So it's funny how uh, that term now is so has become so confusing to everyone. Where I've I've actually there's a couple of people that you know will kind of laugh or or you know debate about it. Where product designer. Year, year, years ago, back when you know I was younger, and even in college, it meant you were making a physical product like a sneaker, or and and it was almost just like a, an industrial designer. Honestly, I mean that in a sense is what it was. And now it's become like basically an interface designer, <laughs> a fancy word totally. for interface designer. You know. Yep. Yeah. No, I've I've been on a few of those rants online with uh, like Matt Walker. I think yeah, yeah exactly. I think you, yeah. the three of us, actually got into yep. a, a little. I think you did. Yeah, you chimed in. That was, yeah. that was funny because <laughs> I I still uh, equate it to physical product, um, right? But it is what it is. So yeah, so the the team I was on was uh, what do they call it again? It's apparel, footwear, and accessories. So AFA. Um, and the really cool part at the time is that. The guy who hired me, Brian Takumi, and then who became my boss, uh, Jeff Ring, they'd both been there for quite a while. And uh, Brian was like creative director. He's now, I think, VP of brand or something. And uh, his his fingers were in a little bit of anything. So projects could come through that were not apparel related. You know, it, it could be hang tag, it could be identity and logos and whatnot. He was really 
um, involved in like the eyewear side of things and just the overall Oakley brand. So we, um, we would do the seasonal things, right? Just crank out hundreds of t-shirt graphics, tons of repeat print board, uh, board short for surfwear, mm-hmm. um, prints, um, that would translate onto goggles and backpacks and uh, sweatshirts, whatever. Uh, but then you get to do environmental graphics. So whether it's, um, the rolling OLAB doing vehicle wraps for boats and trucks, and it could be logos for the eyewear. I got to do a couple logos for, um, different sunglass models and then, um, product design, designing the actual band of a watch, um, to, um, yeah, just it was they they redid their Square O while I was there, and so I got to chime in a little bit on some iterations of their Square O logo. So it was it was really fun, and and the thing the nice about Oakley is that um, whether you're entry level or all the way to the top, you kind of have you're talking to uh, who at the time the president was Colin Bate, and you're 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 having conversations directly with those people, and kind of getting to defend your designs, talk about it a little bit, and then hearing them say they don't like it anyway but which is fine but uh it's uh yeah it was it was a really good place and um, like i tell people all the time there's nothing bad about oakley there was never any reason why i left like you know it wasn't one of those you know screw it i'm out of here it was just i was young and i wanted to see what i was made of and try my own thing and and i'm really glad i did they were really supportive because they uh said good luck and then they actually hired me back on for a couple of seasons to do some uh as an actual client. That's awesome. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it seems like that there, there's almost like a circuitous path for you in your, in your career as far as designing for products that are physical products. There's, there's like these parallels between what you do now, it seems like, and what you did then for Oakley and that you're designing physical products that are used by human beings. Would you say that's true? And what are maybe some of the kind of things that you took from Oakley that really kind of help you into today? Is there anything that you took from that gig that stuck with you and became like a through line throughout to where you are at Trek now? Yeah, I don't know if it's... Um, trying to think of like process. You know, you you learn process. You learn how to make a lot of work fast and get through a lot of bad ideas fast, um, especially in an apparel environment, because I did a lot of work at Oakley and all my freelance, and then when I started my own design studio, it was very heavy into apparel graphics, um, whether, you know, Skull Candy, Rhythm, Hippie Tree, Reef, like all these surf companies, Rusty and whatnot, and it's like just having to crank out, and usually in a very short time period, their art director, creative director will contact you, um, or my boss when I was at Oakley, and I was like, hey, we've got to get these this many dozen graphics done and through and not that all of them make it to the uh, sales room floor but obviously you got to churn out a lot for them to be able to pick which ones are on point for their season and their brand and all kind of stuff Um, so learning how to work and get a lot of work done I guess is something that was ingrained in me there I love um, seeing samples of work you do whether it makes it uh, the final cut or not but seeing that physical product for me is something that will never get old and that I'll never give up. I mean, that's, um, I respect the hell out of people that do web design. And when I see a really good site, you know, uh, like the, the good folks over at Fuzzco when they launched their new site and it just, mm-hmm. you know, when people can do fresh things on the internet, um, it still amazes me and I, I really appreciate it. It's just not something that like 
I have a passion for. Right. Um, I have a. I have a, like. I love holding on to something that you did, or or walking by in some other state or country and seeing somebody wearing or, or riding something that that you designed. And um, that's what's so cool about the bicycle is that Trek's one of the largest cycling companies in the entire world. We make more bikes than most any other company. Um, they're still family owned and uh, by the original founding family and they still make frames here in the USA which is a huge I actually featured them on 50 built before I ever got the job and um, so yeah there's just a lot of good stuff going on at Trek that I love from the product being able to work hands-on on the actual bicycles and the kits and you know uh, seeing the physical manifestation of your work and the whole process is, is something that is uh I appreciate very much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned uh, surf. You know, you did some work for some surf brands, obviously. Um, and Oakley, I think itself, sort of, I'm not that familiar with the history, but it seems like surfing and the beach and that type of sort of out uh, water sports is almost at its core. Um, but I'm curious, you you do it, you, obviously you're, you're continuing to do work for Infinity Surfboards. Is that true? Are you still doing some work? Yep, every 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 week, every month, yeah, yeah for sure. Okay, yeah, we're, we're... yeah, very cool. So I'm curious, you're passionate about surfing yourself. Your Twitter profile says, you know, surfing says design, sports, the things that you're passionate about, and you obviously have a very deep understanding of the sport, its products, and specifically its culture. And honestly, to me, I'm I'm a very big culture guy in the world of sport. To me, the culture of sport is sometimes more interesting than the sports themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's sure. just being a designer and a creative person. I think it's probably like that for a lot of designers. If you look at European soccer or football and just that culture and the sort of ephemera that comes with the culture. I'm curious, is your does your current locale limit you at all when it comes to staying deeply ingrained culturally in the sport so that you can create for brands that are within it? Yeah, I don't... Um... I'd say definitely not. I think that if I was here and totally disconnected for a couple of years and then right out of the blue, someone's like, hey, you know, we want to feature you uh, or, or hire you to do a design project, um, it might be tough to get back into it. But um, I'm into it, obviously, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. I just did stuff for another buddy who owns a separate surfboard company. Um, my best friend who stood up at my wedding is the announcer for uh, the World Surf League, the professional circuit. That's cool. And so he's out there in touch with those guys, and I talk to him all the time. So it's something that um, if my core group of friends, you know, literally everyone that stood up at my wedding, uh, wasn't that ingrained into it, it might be a little bit more difficult to stay in touch. But like I said, over a decade working in a surf shop and then having all my clients, and most of my clients still to this day are West Coast, California-based, um, and I get back there quite a bit yeah well i love i love to hear that because i myself just i live remotely in a actually out way out in the country honestly (laughs) outside of lexington i usually say lexington kentucky but that's just because it's the closest city i'm really about 40 minutes way out in the foothills of like the appalachian mountains and it's it's a nice change of scenery for me because i get to walk outside and see cows and hills and things in my backyard as opposed to a city but yeah, um, for sure, I, I I truly believe that good work can be created anywhere, and especially the beauty of the internet nowadays. You are able to stay 
deeply ingrained in that culture. Uh, there, it's easier for you to stay deeply ingrained in that culture with the social internet, essentially. Uh, do you do totally. other like certain message boards or Slack channels or anything that you kind of deep dive into when you're working on projects in that world? Uh, not too much. No, I think um, I don't do a lot of if it's if it's uh, pertinent to a specific brand and they have a separate vibe than your um, standard um, surf company, which which there are some that you need they, the surf industry gets is it's small it's very small it gets very homogenous and um, it, a lot of the stuff starts looking the same and and so it's important to branch out and find your own voice in that in that uh, mess a little bit and so yeah there there are times and that's kind of what we do when we're um, with infinity their their stuff might look familiar the nowadays but when we were doing it um, especially at a surf shop level the retail retailers for the surf industry are not at all cutting edge design and so it, it's um it's more about the story that that shop can tell or that brand can tell than it is about doing overall mm-hmm. surfing research you know it's it's just like with any design right it's getting to the core of what's your story who are you and it's easy enough just to tell that story because if you if you stray from that then uh, it's you know you're lying and it's the the big word authenticity these days it's not very right. authentic yeah and um, and it, it's super easy so when I'm doing stuff for infinity like I said founded in the 70s still the same family owns it Steve and Barry Bainey um, are the founders uh, husband and wife and three-time world tandem champions and their sons Dave and Dan are heavy heavy in the surfboard uh, world and professional uh, surfing world so they're they're shaping boards and traveling the world surfing I think uh, so it's, it's easy to have when you have those kind of characters and then the team that they have surrounding the shop um, it makes the design job super easy because uh, they've got really good photographer mm-hmm. um, that that travels with them so they generate the content and I think as any designer knows when you have the content the design should come pretty natural and easy. Right, right. Well, let's talk about your time at Trek, which is where you're at now, Trek Bicycle. You're currently an art director there. Uh, For those, you touched a little bit on Trek earlier, but for those that maybe aren't familiar with that brand, can you give us a little more insight into who they are, what they do, and maybe a little bit more about your day-to-day with them? Yeah, for sure. So, uh Founded by Dick Burke back in 1976 and uh, still run by his son, John Burke, uh, who's the president. And they manufacture bicycles and bicycle-related goods. So um, it can be they, – they cover the entire range. If there's a bike that you need, Trek makes it, which, you know, it's it's a big corporation's mass-produced bicycles. Um some people aren't into that. They're into the kind of small boutique thing. But if you're looking for a good quality bike, I can tell you that Trek's got your back. Um, they really do care about cycling um, and people and safety and, and what it does for does for humans and um, different world problems. So they gone through. They were known a lot for touring and road bikes. And then kind of, I'd say, actually not until, they, they've been doing mountain biking for a, for a while. They own the Gary Fisher brand. And Gary Fisher is a godfather of mountain biking. Um, that's since morphed into just the Trek mountain bike line. And I'd say they really, really started focusing on that um, in the last decade or two. 
and have become a leader in that market as well. So uh, then they own the Bontrager brand, which is an umbrella of um, apparel, accessories, helmets, anything that's on the body uh, type goods, electronics and all that type of stuff. But it's the creative group there at the time when I was hired. Um, Eric Glenn was a creative director at the time and he had really established a great creative studio um, of designers from all over the country, all over the world actually. And we were all together in one design studio. Um, and uh, from visual to print to product. And then once uh, he left a couple years ago and my particular group went under the industrial design group, so design and engineering, you know, kind of the, the product design um, side right. of things. Mm -hmm. And because uh, we're product graph designers and we work on the physical bikes, picking color and graphics. And um, so it's been a really, it's been a really good transition, you know. Um, it's... Uh, working on the physical form and getting a deeper understanding of what goes into that from engineering to industrial design to final product is super valuable. And, um, so yeah, we, we work just like you do with any other kind of design process where, um, you've got to go through the research, you know, tons of research and travel and, um, understanding the trends and understanding the manufacturing process. And then, uh, Color and graphics are subjective in any um, arena for the most part. So really tuning in. We do a lot of uh, rider research and who, who that specific rider is, um, why they're buying the bike, and then hopefully trying to nail the color and graphics appropriately. Um, I had a hard time taking the job because I was a print and brand designer. I didn't really mm -hmm. understand what, what doing bicycle graphics and colors were going to be all about. And... Um, and then, which is part of the reason the first two times the job was offered, I kind of said, thanks, but I'm going to continue on my path and, uh, talked to them a little bit more about it, got a little more of understanding. And now when I recruit other, recruit other designers, um, who are always from the, a print background or, or, you know, 2d background for the most part, you try to explain to them, you're designing a poster and then wrapping it on the bike. You need to have everything, the same stuff from typography to, um, your composition, you know, called choice of color, limited color palette, simplicity. And I think over the last three years and, and then in the coming years, um, we've really, really started to dial in that Trek brand and, uh, how it's looking. So it's, it's been a really good last few years and seeing that, um, every August they have Trek world mm -hmm. where vet uh, dealers come in from all over the world and, uh, see the new product lineup and to see every single bike that we manufacture and in the same place and seeing dealer reactions and getting kind of immediate feedback. It's, it's a, it's a pretty powerful thing. Very cool. So it's, it's intriguing to me. The Trek as a company is intriguing to me because I don't know much about it having not been a biker myself, but just looking at your work, checking out the website, looking at the brand itself, it seems to have this design-driven culture. And you yourself seem to have worked at a lot of places that have a design-driven culture. But looking at Trek specifically, the mission today, as you know, I read from their Facebook page, is to help the world use the bicycle as a simple solution to complex problems. And to me, that's a beautiful mission statement because that mission statement itself essentially describes what design is at its core. So how are you and your team achieving this mission through creativity, brand strategy, 
and design. And are there any maybe standout stories where your work at Trek has resonated with a specific user or fan or maybe a favorite bike that you've designed for a customer? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, yeah, it comes down from the leadership. So you're, you're lucky to have a place that knows even what design is, right? I mean, there's a lot of places that just don't focus on it. You're kind of a, a person that sits at a desk in some part of the building and cranks out the eye candy. But um, they do, they, they care about the design of it. They really care about the bikes and how they affect the customer. And they understand that design is a big part of that. And um, the industrial design group and the engineers at Trek, um, we, we have some amazing engineers. And they're kind of the unsung heroes, I'd say, of of that company because the amount of research and interaction that they do, they come from backgrounds of literal rocket scientists. we got people there from NASA and the space industry and um, are they're never resting. Like we're not a, you know, it, it's like any big company. You need to play catch up when you're, when you're behind in a certain segment or category, but that's not their way of um, conducting business as a whole. It's, it's really trying to figure out the next best product and inventing um, new ways to get that. Every, every time they reintroduce a new uh, road bike or mountain bike, they win like industry awards for bike of the year. It's just like they don't rest, they don't settle, and they're constantly striving for a better design and a better solution um, to that particular product. And the user and the customer is 100% of the time the focus of those um those projects like if if it's not a solution that's needed we're not gonna waste time and energy to do it even if we know it could you know make us a few extra bucks or we could get some margin out of it or whatever the you know the business out of it might be um really comes down to is is a customer experiencing something that there's issues that we need to solve and they don't do traditional focus groups but they put a lot of emphasis on getting out into the the market and you know we have our um, required dealer visits that we have to be out there in the field and and touching down and talking with people that are actually selling these bikes day to day and then meeting with customers you know some of our good customers from around uh, sending out surveys to people that we really have a relationship with and then um, understanding why these people are um, are or are not buying a bike whether it's a trek or not and you know it's obvious stuff from um safety you know people a lot of people are scared of road riding because it's it is dangerous mm-hmm. you're out there with with automobiles and cars and so a good example of um trek not not anything to do with graphics you know graphic design but um the guys and girls in the electronics department came out with the the flare and the ion lights and it's one of those things that you can see it as marketing but it's been tested. They are like the brightest, mo- they've won all these awards for just uh, huge safety measures because um, we've read too many um, articles and people that actually work for Trek of people being hit and um, unfortunately, you know, killed by cars and automobiles. And the goal is that they don't want that to ever happen again. Right. Um, so I guess the, from an insider perspective, you can get jaded at certain companies and, um, you know, it's not a utopia. Obviously there's frustrations like there is any job, uh, with, with any kind of process and whatnot. But as a whole, I can wholeheartedly say that, um, Trek puts his money where its mouth is. They really do believe in bikes. They do believe that their solution, they're out there beating the ground. Um, and, uh, with, 
DC, you know, doing trying to get legislation to get more cycling lanes in cities, mm-hmm. and then they're contributing. They're the only company at the time they were. I'm assuming they still are, where they contribute a percentage of every sale of a full suspension mountain bike to Imba, who builds trails all around the country, um, and uh, for for mountain biking specifically, they have League of American Cyclists. I mean, they're they're donating millions of dollars to these uh, organizations for the betterment of cycling. And obviously it's, it's a good business investment, but it's a good people investment too. And, um, they, they do believe in the product. Yeah. Um, I think, and honestly, those companies, in my opinion, not just Trek, but companies that really the core of the brand is what, I mean, what a brand really stands for. That's the most important thing, right? At the end of the day, no matter what the product is, it's about what the brand stands for. And us as consumers in this world of transparency can always tell when a when a brand is to use that word we talked about we've kind of made fun of earlier authentic yeah yep they are they are i mean there's a lot to be said because we have a lot of um kind of tying it back to the sports thing is that we have a lot of we have a thing called great athletes ride trek and they're not cyclists so you got we've designed bikes and custom bikes we love to really get into the nitty-gritty of um, the, the people who were doing these bikes for and their story and their likes and dislikes and, you know, uh, talking with them on the phone. You know, we've done recently the Brett Favre bike. Uh, Bo Jackson is getting a, uh, another bike right now. We're in the process of making that. And because uh, he's got his bikes, uh, Bo Bikes Bama initiative um, that was originally created to help the tornado victims um, in Alabama. And so we've been a supporter of his for years now and supplied bikes for that. And uh, the Wounded Warrior 100, you know, supplying bikes to, you know, veterans. And um, then you have all these big time athletes, the Tony Kanans and Dario Franchitti and um, trying Anton, uh, Apollo Anton Ono, the speed skater. And mm-hmm. you've got these people that... Um, we do bikes for it and they don't get paid to ride a Trek. They can ride whatever they want. And the Trek name and the Trek brand does stand for something. And I think that they want to be on the best bike. And um, it's it's obviously great marketing for us because you've got these global athletes um, that, A, we get, we get to have fun as designers because we're making these one-off amazing cool paints, really intimate details and designs, sometimes bikes that aren't. Uh, possible in production but you can do one time or you know a couple mm-hmm. times and um really try and make them special for these athletes and and be there when they they get them and and see the reaction and then seeing a photo of them you know months later still riding that thing uh it's pretty cool yeah yeah for sure and it's it's something that you actually noticed yourself earlier as you mentioned when you were founding 50 built First of all, I think that 50 Built is a great name and it really fits the mission. But I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about that particular project and your inspiration behind it? Because I can tell that you feel strongly about American-made products with the recommendations on the site, the companies to purchase from, as well as the many books that you recommend there. Where did that passion come from? Yeah, um, I guess I prefer the. I've always preferred the quality over quantity um, thing and it's really weird until you ask the question I never thought about it uh, in the way that I'm thinking about it right now but I remember sitting on my parents bed growing up and my dad 
who himself is a kind of, um, he was the son of Swedish immigrants, and they came here for a better life because they loved the USA um, and kind of what it, what it meant to them. And didn't always have nice things growing up, blah, 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 whatever. And so I'm sitting there, and he's, he's buffing his shoes, polishing his shoes, and he's teaching me how to do it and just kind of told me what his dad told him is that you don't always have to have um, a lot of things. You don't have to buy new stuff. But when you buy something, buy something of quality. You know, it'll last you a long time. Right. And uh, it's really bizarre that I'm kind of referencing that because I've never thought about that until now. But I guess that that is kind of the crux of the issue for me is that we make so much crap in this world and people consume so many things that are not needed and this isn't supposed to get on some you know high horse or pedestal and you know turn into a lecture but it's just um i'm extremely passionate about buying less buying quality and i feel that a lot of that stuff is american made and and the the quality behind it the people behind it the warranties they offer i mean the warranties that american made companies offer you can't get from anything else um very few things anyway and uh it's not only about made in the usa um is it much as it is about buying things made where the people making them it's their specialty so if it's buying italian leather if it's buying a swiss watch if it's buying japanese denim you know like whatever the thing might be um and really appreciate that um the hard work and the history behind that product i mean there's a ton of history to each one of those objects and uh, I think the USA through 50 build, I won't bore people with too many details, most of which I've, I'd have to relook at anyway. But um, the productivity level here is unlike anything else found in the rest of the world. You, you, you'd be really surprised at the cost of goods to make things here after you consider import taxes and all the other things that our manufacturers have going against them. Um, it's... Uh, if you do a quick Google search, you'd be surprised at things that you can find that are made in the USA. I was um, in North Carolina a couple of years ago, and I was at a local hardware store in this small town. And there was a, uh, a random rack that had clothes for the reason in this hardware store. And I think it was called Texas Jeans. And it said right on there, proudly made in the USA. Every component on the jean is made in the USA. And it's a pair of denim for 19 bucks. You know, it wasn't like a $200, $300, $400 pair of jeans. Like, you can easily find that for main USA companies, mm-hmm. and they're awesome in their own right. But uh, the fact that these people found a way to manufacture what most people pay for $200 pairs of jeans from, you know, a, a, a different place in the world that um, is exploiting workers, you know, worker safety, and it, all in all, the company making them is just reaping huge benefits and margins um it's uh yeah i guess that's just not something that i i like to uh stand behind and support well it's it's a very it's something that also for me is kind of near and dear because my the town that i grew up in is a manufacturing town i mean there are Mm -hmm. essentially in lexington kentucky there's a huge toyota factory and then there are all these sort of spinoff factories that support that make parts for that toyota factory Mm -hmm. and and that's what's interesting are these little economies that kind of pop up and and the town that i grew up in is 
that's where everybody that essentially I went to high school with, they go to work at those types of places. And sure. you know, when those jobs aren't available, it's it turns locations like where I'm from into these unfortunate drug infested <laughs> uh, communities. Um, sure. And you know, but I think that there's there's actually, and this is a complete aside, um, but there's a something you might even want to look into for for 50 built, but there's a company in Lexington, Kentucky called make time and their, their website is maketime.io. And essentially what they sort of uh, consider themselves is the Uber of manufacturing. So what they do is they build the software that these, they, they work with like machinists and manufacturers around the country. And essentially they put their software on their machines. And so when someone has, gets a job and they, Need to outsource it to someone that has bandwidth to do the job. Maybe they have, they don't have, they get a big job, they literally can't handle the job. So now they can team up with these other small manufacturers and say, hey, I see you have bandwidth on your machines. Why don't we team up and do this thing together? And it's, it's an interesting product. I mean, it's, it's sort of one of those things like, let's bring manufacturing back to the USA and that type of thing. So it's, it's a, it's a cool, cool thing. I did, yeah. I did, uh, <laughs> Uh, I did find some items on on your site that uh, I'm probably going to end up spending money on that I should be pouring into the podcast. <laughs> one, <laughs> one being the Heritage Flag Company. So my yeah. my uh, my wife's father is from North Carolina, and I noticed that that company that that is uh, is from North Carolina. And I'm pretty sure, pretty sure one of those small batch flags is going to end up being a Christmas gift in the near future. <laughs> Very cool. Where do you yeah, find got- where do you find these items at? I mean, do you just kind of stay up late and scour the deep dark corners of the internet? Or are people submitting things? They'll submit. So the the amazing thing about bases loaded and fifty built, both of them is you know good intentions. I had planned on expanding on fifty built, or I'm sorry, both of them uh, bases loaded and going into maybe surfing and cycling and football and all these different sports and creating its own series and and fifty built same thing. You have these good intentions and really the they they won't die like they'll they keep sticking around people reach out they want something to do with them um 50 bill people are always letting you know kind of uh stuff's made here they'll send you a product to review and um i think the heritage flag company though i also get people know not to just buy me either either don't buy me anything i don't need stuff and uh so close friends and family who do exchange gifts for um you know, birthdays and holidays, they'll buy me American-made things. And mm-hmm. so I actually learn a lot of uh, about a lot of companies through these really cool gifts that are given to me. And so the Heritage Flag was one that I think it was given to me a couple, yeah, it was two years ago, maybe, or a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, just killer. You see the thing and they didn't, they, they don't know me from anything. I just, I just wrote that review about the object that I received and then did a little research on them, similar to like, you know, how you conduct your podcast. You um, try to tell their stories best you can. And then, um, yeah, then other companies you, you develop more of an intimate relationship with and you have exchanges with and they keep you up to date and they'll kind of email you and let you know when new things are happening. Um, Sarah's Bike Rack Company is one of those companies where, They'll kind of say, "Hey, we're releasing a new video. If you can share with your your uh, followers and readers and whatnot." But um, yeah, it's it's through different avenues, but just more or less a passion. You're always probably it's probably annoying to some people, but I'll, I flip the flip everything over to see where it's made, and so you just kind of by chance you're pleasantly surprised. I have um, I love my little I got my little Subaru race car, and so I just bought some rally uh, 
rally armor mud flaps for it and got it in the mail a couple of days ago, looked at the box and sure enough made in the USA. So it's just, it's about recognizing it, taking a note about it. Mm-hmm. And then who knows, maybe I'll take some photographs and put a review up on 50 build just to give them. It's only to give those companies, um, some recognition and some publicity, not that they don't get it on their own, but, um, if I can do any little bit, then I'd be stoked too. Yeah, totally. Well, I think it's clear that you have this maker mentality and you definitely have a passion for sort of these small batch handmade products, um, or, or small, you know, like I said, small batch, small companies creating these things, not massively manufactured things. And then also your printmaking background, I can tell that, that paired with your passion of these small batch products is really sort of, it seems to be at your core. It's interesting though, there seems to be a contrast between the clean lines and angled work of the industrial design that you create projects for during the day versus like the rough sort of sketchy feel of work that you do in your spare time. I'm curious, how did you manage to achieve that sort of rough hand-drawn style of work and are you ever able to bring that type of outlet into your day job at Trek? Yeah. Um, there's, so the, the I say base is low. So growing up in the surf industry, it's always been a do-it-yourself kind of culture, you know, and uh, it's always that Xerox copy, punk rock, flyers, Southern California punk scene. Um, that's the music. Obviously, you listen to contemporary stuff, you know, current things, but uh, I still will always love that kind of um, 90s surf punk um, bands. And so you get a lot of that raw aesthetic from them and um, the hand-drawn type, the kind of make it happen however you got to make it happen. I'm, I still am kind of a texture idiot using brushes, all stuff. Every, everyone could probably create what I create in half the time or a fraction of the time, but um, I still will make a texture by hand, scan it in and manipulate in Photoshop or whatever. Um, I don't do any brushes, not because I'm, I think any way of them, I just don't really have never invested time in learning how to do them well. Um, so when I get a chance and, and the, the timing's right and the client's right and it's appropriate for the project, like I thought it was for bases loaded and 50 built, um, there's a contrast with 50 built because I've got the product side and the website side and the logo, which are really clean. And then the poster series, you know, if you click on posters on the 50 built site, it'll take you to society six where I have all the posters up there and they're all just like the hand done raw um, texture. But I thought they were appropriate for that because I started off doing for those two specifically kind of, you know, the infographic style thing where you're doing these like flow charts and everything's really clean and vector and there's numbers and the whole point of both of those is that it was a heavy intensive research project um there's a ton of information on those posters that like i spent a lot of time reading a lot of books checking out physical books from the library and and really reading up on these things and um hopefully knowing a little bit more than i did before i did the project and i found that people glaze over um, when you're trying to get their attention and keep it for a while, the really clean vector stuff. If I just created this huge infographic and I had a gallery full of um, 30 to 40 posters like I had for uh, 50 built of just all these images. So the I'm going to come back to you on that because there was a uh, an artist who is really iconic and she has some really great... James Victoria also comes to mind mm-hmm. in his kind of raw imagery with hand-done type. 
And I just, people were a lot more willing to stand there and look at the designs, read the designs, and people would sit there and read the entire thing, this hand-done type, and I wasn't getting that same reaction with the really clean vector thing. Then on the flip side, for most of my client work, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's whatever's appropriate for the client and the project. Um, at Trek, it's project to project. One team rider that we just did, um, uh, let's see, there's two, two bikes. One bike I can talk about, one that hasn't come out yet, so I won't touch on it much, but they're both very intensive hand-done where I just drew directly on the frame with a chalk marker, and um, it was uh, you know, a really fun bike to do and kind of putting her story in a really illustrative hand-done manner. You know, then there's a lot of them that are really clean and, and cut because that's what's appropriate. And then this new one is kind of a 10-year uh, a anniversary bike. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a collage of a lot of really cool images and stuff that I was able to get my hands dirty a little bit on the bike. And um, so, yeah, I guess all I'm saying is it's whatever is warranted by the project and that goes with any design I am not I don't think I'm known for it's always hard to talk about yourself I don't know what I'm known for I don't know what people think of when they think of me but I don't have a specialty um, and I don't think I'm known for one aesthetic I think it's uh, or if I'm known at all who knows but it's um, it's a uh, I guess it's a I can do a little bit of everything uh, enough to be dangerous but um, well I think that's uh, in episode 8 Darren Crescenzi, who used to work in Nike's graphic identity group, now he's at Interbrand. He mentions at the end that I ask him about style. And one of the things that he mentions is if you're an illustrator, having a style is a good thing. If you are a designer, then you should basically create in the style of whatever the project's needs are. And so that, that, this sounds kind of like what you're explaining. I mean, you you create what is needed based on what maybe the brief is or the concept that you're trying to get across. Yeah, absolutely. You're using, it has to do with, the first of all, who you're working for, what's the base load and 50 built were my own things. So I could determine that on my own and that was whatever I wanted to be for selfish reasons. And then everything else, yeah, it's, it's limited to, especially when you're working in physical products, products is the materials and um, what the possibilities are and then pushing those boundaries and um, trying to do new things with materials that have been around forever and uh, yeah through that you get something that's either really organic and fun and hand done or you get something that's you know uh, for lack of a better word a little bit more clean and cold and um, just to the point Um, uh, yeah Yeah, so let's Let's kind of continue on this path on side projects because you've obviously done a couple and we've mentioned bases loaded a couple times, but we haven't really done any deep level discussion on it. I mentioned earlier that the podcast has an undertone of both entrepreneurship and side projects. I always get so geeked when I talk to people that are doing interesting things on the side because to me, those little projects that maybe even sometimes become big projects are so important to our growth and even maybe our sanity as creative individuals. And I think that you fit the mold in both of these areas. So I'm curious, what role kind of overall would you say side projects have played in your own career? I mean, as far as like your growth, your ability to get particular clients. Yep. Yeah, I think um, it's, yes, it's no coincidence that when I, when you, when you do a project, whatever it might be, 
I was doing a ton of surf stuff and I get surf clients. I still get a lot of surf clients and I did the bases loaded and I started getting a lot of baseball clients. You know, you get, you get stuff related to what you're working on 50 built. I started getting things from American made companies and, um, it's, it's what everybody says, right? It's like, do the work and show the work that you want to be working on because that's what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And when you do your portfolio, which um, my current portfolio is extremely outdated and not really relevant, I've I've had good intentions. And in the next month or so, I should be launching my entire new uh, website underneath a, under a different name and all this kind of good stuff that'll show an entirely different breadth of work uh, that I've been up to for the last three to four years that I haven't really shown much um, over that time. But uh, is this Lindstrom Works? Yeah, Lindstrom Works. So you're rebranding from New Barrick to Lindstrom Works. Is that kind of yeah, okay. correct? All right, cool. Yeah, rest rest in peace, New Barrick. It's uh, it was really really good for the time being, and it, it, I think not that it's known uh, outside of my friends and family probably, but uh, it's just known for a certain aesthetic and a certain thing and a certain client base. And I really have some new things I want to work on and uh, I have been working on. And I think they're more appropriately reflected in this new direction. So before new Barrick, I'd always had design studios related to my last name, Lindstrom. I don't know if mm-hmm. it's a ego issue I have or whatnot, but I, I like the idea of having your name associated, especially when you're a small one person or even a small two to three person studio. Like, it's your it's your signature, it's your stamp. It's saying, "Hey, I'm putting my name on it," which means that I think this is the good stuff. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. I actually, um, I have this dream to. <laughs> so, so I have two sons, four and six, and I have this dream to do something. I don't know what it is. Whether that's maybe it one day create like a piece of furniture or something like that, and name that particular company A Martin and Sons. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it just, just kind of goes back to that. It's it's like we were saying that maker mentality, but it kind of has that uh, sort of Renaissance man type thing. Uh, that sort of old school. Everything used to be named this back in the day, like so and so brothers, whatever you know. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, when you say that, like Perky Brothers comes to mind. I love, I love the work that. Yeah, they're in Nashville, uh, right? Yeah, and they they make some killer design. You read their little bio on their website, and uh, you know it's it's basically about his family history and uh, Jeff Perky. And so I think that that's where um, I, I like stuff like that. And that's in the past. Like I said, I've had it under the Lindstrom name. New Barrick was kind of a fun little nickname I had at the surf shop, and so it just turned. It kind of was a, an animal that. Uh, spun out of control and turned into my design moniker for lack of a better uh, reasoning. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, my grandpa, same way. Like I, we got every every person has a cool story to tell, whether it's family or your own history or you know some ancestor down the way. And um, the work mentality of both my grandparents and my dad. And I'm really proud of um, what they did as professionals. I guess you'd say. Um, and and my and my grandmas who had to raise the whole family and and it was it was a very blue collar vibe. Um, he was a grandpa from Sweden came over not speaking any English and learned English within six months. Was a master stair builder. Would go on to build um, stairs and carpentry for different members of the Chicago Bears. And so he he was uh, he was a badass. And I think that when you use your name, you're kind of paying homage to to who you are and to uh, those people that have influenced you. And so, yeah, it's a little bit of that. And there's a lot of 
double and triple meaning behind Lindstrom Works. You know, you got we work, we work hard. You know, as a uh, uh, people, in my family, and the design's going to work for you. And uh, yeah, it's just um, I'm pretty excited to to have that site out there. It's especially cool when it's a thing that you're selling and not necessarily even that it's client work, but it's like you, you do a lot of this obviously yourself where you create these posters and you put, put this art into the world and you sell it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's something that you made that inside your heart you want to create and you're putting that into the world. And that makes putting that Lindstrom works stamp on something so much cooler because like literally at that point it is Lindstrom works. You're not doing this for someone else. You're creating this, essentially for yourself and putting it out to the world. And if people have that sort of same taste, they can purchase this thing. Totally. Yeah. And I, I, I want it to be that. I want it to be an umbrella company for client work and for a lot of other, I guess you call them personal projects, but I want them to be legitimate ventures um, that I have planned and they're different product companies and totally separate um, sectors. Um, and so I think it kind of being this like little lab or incubator for, ideas and design and products and just working with cool people and uh, on things that I really want to see out in the world that I think have a purpose. Again, kind of going back to that, um, make something that maybe there's a need for, not just to contribute to the mass-produced society. And I, it's funny because after talking about this, it seems ironic that um, I really have a passion for that, and yet the two companies, the two times I decided to go work for companies, they've been with perhaps the most mass-produced companies in their market. I mean, the largest sunglass company, largest bike company, but um, I guess I just reiterate the quality part. You know, well, I mean, they're design-driven, though, and I think it, yeah. it's not like any sunglasses company. We're talking about a company that has design at its core, so now you're essentially taking these two things, a design-driven mentality and experience, and Put and essentially, this is what I love about these podcasts and these sort of stories that are crafted together because you're essentially taking this thing that you're passionate about, which is design, and also merging it with a part of your history, which is this kind of Midwestern, you know, family. Mm -hmm. And for me, like, this is a totally, I, I, we're, we're kind of derailed here, but that's totally fine. And that's what I love about these podcasts as well. But my son, uh, my youngest son, his name is Riley. And so Riley is actually named after his great, 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 great grandfather, whose name was Riley Martin and who was a union soldier. So, so it's cool. like those types of things for me, I, I'm very passionate about that type of stuff too. Like there's tying a story into something and kind of paying homage to these things that came before us. And even when I named my own, I, I rebranded from doing my own thing, a, a Martin Design, which kind of just that sort of became my company by accident, basically, because it was like the domain that I ended up buying back in 2004 or whatever. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I renamed it to Mountain and Company because I wanted to kind of pay homage to, I'm an eighth generation Kentuckian. I'm from the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And if you take a few letters and knock them out of the word mountain, then, uh, then you, or yeah, if you take a few letters and knock them out of the word mountain, then you essentially get an abbreviation for both the word mountain and my last name, MTN. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a story there. And I'm, I've, so it's just like the words and company or uh, like there's something about that kind of maker mentality that that seems to fit. It'd be different if it was like Martin and Associates or whatever. Cause like to me, that sounds a little more like a law firm. <laughs> totally. Yeah. 
And 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 it's interesting because I think there was an era of designers that really went after that. Where if you look at, um, not obviously not James Victoria, but some of the people that were kind of in his age group, you would see somebody that's where it's sort of like Johnson Design Associates or or oh, yeah, yeah. so and so partners or something yep. like that. Where it's a very professional kind of look, and I think we've kind of circled back to ever a lot of us wanting to go back to that more boutique high quality, uh, small amount of manpower, quote unquote, thing. Yeah, it's funny because you get, um, even a lot of those companies like Duffy and Partners, right? I think I think they rebranded as just Duffy now and and you have, uh, there is kind of that D, um, you're, you're taking down the walls and I, you see it a ton. I don't know where people get it from. I honestly do not know, but it seems like every small design studio out there says small and mighty. Um, we're small but mighty, and it's yeah. just like it, it's become this kind of thing where, yeah, we're we're capable of doing a hell of a lot more than maybe what you think we are, but we're also small, so you can you can talk to the people who are making um, the projects that you're coming to us for. Um, I think making is a big part of it. Is there we are kind of living in this really cool era. I don't know if it'd be a golden era or what it would be, but um, of design and and the public understanding and seeing design and. We've got some of the biggest, most admired companies in the world from Starbucks to Apple that are really outwardly spoken about um, design and kind of the role it plays in their their brand and their success. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and then the naming. I mean, if you ask my wife or my friends and family, holy cow, man, they're going to, I, I scrutinize over what the hell to name my company a lot, and it's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah. between, I think we all do, man. It's yeah. one of the hardest things ever to it's, name your company. It took a day to name my kid, right? But it's like to, <laughs> to name a company, I don't know why. It's so much, uh, it feels like you're um, you're literally branding yourself. And, um, but yeah, well, because so, a company is a thing that theoretically could last forever. Hopefully, right? yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, this thing could be this thing. The company, your kid is your kid, obviously, and your kid is going to become their own human being and and this type of thing, and eventually, just the way the world works, pass away. Which obviously we don't like to think about as parents, but mm-hmm. um, a company is something that can be passed down from generation upon generation. I mean, even going back to the Perky Brothers thing, yep, and that is just it's it's insane, and it totally depicts. So it's funny because. Uh... This could turn into a really, you know, cool and long conversation. But it's like going through this, I reach out to people who I really respect and talk to and different mentors. And one of them happens to be right here in Madison, um, Dana Lytle, who's one of the founders of Planet Propaganda. And so uh, they're here right in Madison, Wisconsin, sit down with him and talk every so often. And we got into talking about naming. And I really want to know his thoughts on naming and, um, and how they came up with Planet Propaganda. And obviously they were young. This is, what, 20, 30 years ago? that they had done this and uh, 20 to 30 years ago. But his whole thing was about that. He, he didn't name it after his name and his um, partner's, uh, founding partner's name because uh, he did want it to live on. He wanted it, to, when he was done, he wanted the company to live on without it being attached to his name. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is an interesting thing to think about, right? Is like if it stays in the family and friends and whatever, um, I mean, we all know the big agencies of the world. None of the, the Leo Burnett's or I don't think Olson or you know any of those kind have the founders at it anymore anyway. But um, they do still live on. But it's just kind of this interesting your legacy and 
is it an ego thing to have your name attached? Is it uh, a, a homage thing is it out of respect? And I think there's a lot of reasons to do it. Um, but well, I think a lot of us too, when we create these businesses, like I never, it was never my dream to create a company that became like this massive global agency. Right. Yep. And that makes it, it mean so much more because now you there isn't a, a deep attachment to it. I would lo- absolutely love one day to have my sons come aboard and do this stuff if they if they so choose. I mean, I obviously wouldn't force it, but mm-hmm. you know, it'd be it, it would be great to be able to do that. But like I said, I mean, I'd love to go back and and if I was to create a physical product and sell something that kind of meant something, whether I was like building banjos or you know some some actual thing that's physical that I'm creating, handcrafted and selling, I would definitely definitely go back and name that. A. Martin Sons. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's talk about uh, Bases Loaded, man. Uh, we, we keep we keep kind of staying at this top level about it and, and not going deep into it. Um, you So explain the project for people that aren't familiar with it, first of all. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, 18 um, screen-printed felt banners, and it is, uh, I did nine cream and nine navy so you got the red white and blue color theme going on limited color palette and you have the uh, navy um nine navy and nine white to represent two different teams uh uh, players on the field um and uh yeah you just i went through it so hard right because i on the same thing as 50 build i have an area on there where you can suggest a milestone and people have all these ideas of the next banners I should be doing because they're really passionate about their particular team and that was the hardest part was deciding what those 18 were going to be and my bias definitely shows through in being a Chicago sports fan Um, (laughs) because there's some in there that either people don't know about don't care about and it's definitely not a milestone in baseball but you know my project my rules so I uh yeah yeah, there you go yeah you, you put them in there you try to capture the essence of baseball I was um in the letterpress lab and screen print lab quite a bit watching the Ken Burns baseball documentary just on repeat. And there's like, it's when I say repeat, I actually watched it more than once, which in and of itself watching <laughs> it once is like a huge undertaking. Yeah. And, uh, just seeing the visuals and the stories and the imagery. And, uh, it was really inspiring. And it, it was kind of the ones that whatever ones I thought, you know, really hit home, uh, no pun intended was kind of where I, let the project go. There's a ton of really cool players and a lot of really good initiatives and movements and things that happen that I obviously you can't sum up an entire history of baseball in 18 pictures and 15 if you're not including the Cubs stuff. So, right. um, but yeah, for where did I see a Cincinnati Reds print? It wasn't in this, was it? Well, I did. So I've, this is cool. So this is the third year I did the 199 C, um, for the, the Cincinnati show, uh, opening mm-hmm. day show in um, Covington there in Kentucky. Yep. Um, at BLDG Refuge. So really cool group of guys and girls, and um, they're doing some some fun work, creating a really cool community that they haven't even had to create. They just, Cincinnati in and of itself has a great creative community and then a huge baseball fan base. And mm-hmm. so the yeah, first... It's the oldest, like the oldest team, right? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, and the, which is hard as a Cubs fan to admit because I think Cubs are second. They're they're right up there, but yeah, <laughs> the the Reds are the OGs. So they're um, yeah, super res- 
respect the hell out of uh, that fan base and that team and kind of uh, obviously the Big Red Machine and all the history that they have. But so the first two years was them just inviting me to um, the first year was Pete Rose banner that I'd done. Mm-hmm. Um, just, hey, would you mind having this in the show? Sent them that one. The second year was, hey, do you have any more in the Bases Loaded series that you'd be willing to send to us? And so I sent them, I think it was six banners. These are the actual banners. You can buy the posters on Society6 still, but these are the actual banners that have been kind of floating around the country. Um, and uh, so they went... I went to that actual show, which was really cool to experience and see. And the banners were um, hanging on the ceiling. They've got a beautiful space there, brick walls. And it's kind of not your typical, maybe not your even ideal gallery. You don't have the easy, the ease of just nailing stuff into drywall. It's got a lot of character to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so really cool show. And then the third year, this year, uh, they did for all their people that they invited, they sent out a baseball card. And then based on whatever player you got was inspired to create a, a piece, whatever it might be. And so I got Dave Parker, um, who's, you know, from Cincinnati and is kind of one of their, uh, I guess, returned home to play for the Reds. He's known for being on the Pirates and he won his World Series championships before and after being on the Reds. But um, being a Red was important to them and... Um, it was really cool to, to read about him and learn about him and his nickname is the Cobra. So, I mean, I'd be kind of stupid to not make the print about a right. Cobra because yeah. that's kind of badass. So Yeah, it's I, like um, it's handed to you right there. Yeah, it was the, I, I pulled open and I, you know, I knew Dave Parker as a player. I didn't, didn't know his details and all his history and he was from Cincinnati and even his nickname. So that was one of the first things you read on whatever site that I went to, whether it was Baseball Almanac or Wikipedia or whatever it was and just kind of uh, skimmed over the rest and was started sketching. And um, yeah, if, if you've seen it, it's just kind of, I unraveled the baseball, the shape of the baseball panels kind of happily make the silhouette of a cobra head. So it's kind of the baseball unraveling and, and coming up and the cobra head uh, striking. And so I uh, made a Dave Parker one-off print just for that show and put it in the uh, metal frame that I had from 50 Built and shipped it down there and then had a bunch of buttons made where I took off the nickname, the Cobra, and just put Strike, obviously, a uh, play on the fact that it's a uh, strike for baseball and a strike for the, the snake. Yeah, yeah. And uh, sent those down there with it. And so that was... Uh, a fun project because it's, it's one of those ones where you're like god do i have do i have time to do this right now you got you got pay work you've got um home life you know i've got a 22 month old kid you know almost two year old son mm-hmm. who's uh just like everything that i'd i'd want to have in life so he's he's uh takes up a lot of time and but then we, i always say yes I, I try to say yes to as many things as i can and because they're good people it's a great show and in the end selfishly i get hopefully a uh a rad piece that i can be proud of and i I am i think that it turned out cool and they had a really cool opening i haven't heard much else but it's still up there uh till the end of the month or so but this has been the really cool thing about um bases loaded is kind of where it's the people you meet when you do these things like you've met uh, 74 or plus people now um, mm-hmm. through these podcasts and uh, the shows traveled to different venues um, went to the Big Ten 
Big Ten Conference headquarters down in Chicago for a while, and then I was up at um, the Sports and Society Conference up in it was, that particular year was up in Green Bay. Mm-hmm. It just so happened to be in Wisconsin at St. Norbert's College, and uh, they um, they had you know all sorts of sports people obviously there, and, and baseball geeks, people that know they've forgotten more than I'll ever know about baseball, and so it was a blast talking with them in the gallery. Got to meet and greet and take a photo with Bud Selig, and um, it's a uh, it's these side projects are so damn valuable because of. Um, what they do for you as a person, as a creative, and then the, the, it's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. So, yeah, um, you can't put a monetary value on these things, honestly. No, and 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 I think if you try to, then it loses its luster. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's um, it's oh yeah, it should be the antithesis of of uh, a project worried about sales and, and margins and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's a personal project because it's you know also called a passion project. It should be your passion, and mm-hmm. um, people, you need to put food on the table. You need to to do the things you need to do to um, to live a life, but um, at the same time, you need to feed your soul a little bit too. And yeah, think, absolutely. And and I think to even elaborate on that. That's not saying that you shouldn't charge for something that you're doing on the side, right? I mean, if you find something that fits and like say selling prints or whatever, or me with I'm doing the uh, the community now. But if that's the sole reason why you're doing it, to me, it is completely transparent when that's the sole reason. Oh yeah, and, totally. And it yeah. just it loses. It's like we were talking about the brand stuff earlier. How the brand you're really kind of building a brand. These side projects are brands. Yep. And you, speaking of that, I mean, you actually uh, you connected with Bethany Heck, who's a former guest and and good buddy of mine, who has another pretty sweet baseball project called the Ephus League. Yep. What do you think about uh, what, what is it about baseball that kind of lends itself to these hand drawn elements, this sort of ephemera, and these interesting visuals that almost seem to have a reawakening in this modern era? Yeah, it's um, the history and the the personalities. That- um, I love football, but you don't you don't have those same. You just don't have the the visual richness, the uniforms, the monograms, the outdoor uh, outdoor the outfield um, sponsor signage that's out there. The history of the wood burning emblems and the baseball bats. You know the Spalding, the baseball kind of. It's all the stuff that's cool and and uh, kind of trendy right now with you know crests and. You see people do a brand exploration, and they're basically what they're doing is recreating a lot of stuff that uh, maybe wasn't made from baseball, it was made from craftsmen. And there were so many craftsmen that were making their mark and they're putting their brand literally on the products that baseball players used, whether it was you know uniform labels or baseball bats or gloves and balls and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I love I love Ephus League as as a whole. Uh, it's just a killer project that Bethany has going. I think there are very few people, if any, that I respect more as a designer than Bethany. I think that, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, same here. I agree. Yeah. I just, she can do stuff that is so fresh and so new, um, and, and original looking that, um, and her, obviously everyone knows her ability to handle lots of different typography. I think she just spoke at creative South about that, you know, using a lot of typefaces and, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so she's actually going to do that same talk for 
the Makers of Sport community for a Q&A. Cool. Killer. Yeah, that, that's priceless information to have because it's a, it is a talent. It's not as easy as just going on your, uh, your uh, whatever your font um, bureau of choices and grabbing a bunch and making it look good because it doesn't happen like that. You, you need to have an eye for that. And so yeah, she's got a passion for, that's what it is. It's kind of just what you said. She's making money off it, hopefully, and she's selling stuff. But it's also comes through that it's authentic because she does have a passion for it. You know, I sell all my prints. I sell all the buttons. The the piece that went down to Cincinnati is for sale. So yeah, you, you do need to charge for work. Um, we are professionals, and um, if you're giving work away, obviously you've got. Um, we're also human too, right? You got you got friends and family. You can help them out because if I was a an electrician or a plumber and all that stuff, and my um, buddy down the street needed help, I'd go help them. I wouldn't, you know. Right. You, you can help out. I think there's some people that get really, really crazy about the whole, um, I'm totally anti-spec work and um, all that kind of stuff. But hey, you charge for what you can charge for. We are professionals. and But at the same time, doesn't mean you can't be passionate about that thing. And and uh, a little bit of the the price that you get in return is more than monetary. And um, Yeah, absolutely. And I, like, I just want to encourage listeners to... Uh, support the things that you want to exist. Honestly, I mean, to me, essentially, our every every dollar that we spend is essentially a vote for something. Mm-hmm. And so, f- for me, I mean, I, j- I I have purchased things from Bethany, and I'm about to go purchase some things from you. There's especially this Wilson poster that I think I saw earlier when I was doing some research, the football poster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and that's the thing. Like when there's something that you appreciate that you want to exist in the world, you should support that artist, in my opinion. And I've really tried to make a conscious effort to do that in uh, in the last couple of years, especially since putting out my own podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I know there's, and in the whole makers of sport arena, um, you've got a lot of people doing a lot of really cool stuff from uh, Jeremy Reese to uh, um, Huntington Baseball, you know, company, um, Texas Timber Bats, Warstick, and obviously mm-hmm. Ethos League. I mean, there's just so many people doing rad stuff that um, Elias Stein does really cool illustrations, um, sports-related, a lot of stuff for ESPN, and they all have things for sale in their shops that you can go and support with your dollar, absolutely. Right, right. Well, cool, man. Uh, I don't want to... We could we could honestly kind of wax on all day about this kind of stuff. <laughs> Hell yeah. And, and I don't want to take up too much time. I know that you're, you're, you're a dad uh, like myself and you've got to, got to get to work in the morning. But real quick, uh, one thing that ever since, I think, and, and this will kind of wrap up after this, but ever since I had a, a son, I started thinking a lot more about legacy. And we were talking about legacy in terms of naming a company earlier, but... Mm-hmm. To me, what's interesting about something that I consider with this podcast is that when I'm dead and gone, my sons, this is an archive of their dad's voice, right? That they can go back and listen to having these conversations that maybe they're not even that interested in the conversations themselves, but they get to see me in this transparent form of who I am as an individual and listen to those. So I'm curious, do you ever consider this now with your own work as far as leaving a bit of a legacy, these things we put onto the world, it's, it's a bit of a legacy for us when, when we're kind of gone. And, and is, it, is it going to sort of change the way that maybe you raise your own child in terms of creating work 
maybe in contrast to how you grew up? Because I grew up with like my father at working basically at a factory every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think um, 100%. I think it was funny before my son was born, you think a lot about your parents and kind of how you can do right by them and make them proud and make their their efforts because I have a really supportive family, you know, make their efforts um, seem valued and whatnot. And then now that you have a kid, you think it from the other standpoint is like all these things that I, I say or I think are valuable and important, um, 100% have to reflect onto him and show him that, you know, it's more than just talk. Um, I, I don't want to work one day doing something that I don't believe in or I don't want to be doing, you know, not to say you don't have, you have bad days, you have bad clients, you have, you know, projects and, um, whatever it might be. That's not the point. It's not, you don't give up and just walk away, but it's about really doing something that you believe in. And, um, I believe that if you're, if you're a hard worker and, and talented at what you do, you can find a job in, in anything. And, uh, you, it's life's too short to, to stay doing something that you're not passionate about and that you don't have an interest in. Um, and I, I, I think about that because of my son. I really want him just to be, it's so cliche, but I just want him to be happy. I don't care what he decides to do. If he's not hurting himself and hurting others, um, then have at it. Um, enjoy yourself. Uh, as we all know, money will come, all that kind of good stuff. It's, um, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of hard work being a professional and finding a career that um, you can enjoy that feels fulfilling. But um, from doing these passion projects to working at companies you believe in to doing my own my own studio, my, my ultimate goal, I'm not going to lie, is you know, it's to do my own, my own thing. I love doing my own studio. So in the future, it's probably going to be my thing again. I love client work. I love the idea of full-time going out there, talking to clients, getting work, um, and then having that time to pursue what I want to do. But in the meantime, um, I'm going to love what I am doing at Trek. And, um, it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't be there if it was someplace that I'd be ashamed to tell my son that, you know, I was, I was working at and, um, whatever that, whatever that reason might be. Yeah. What's I think honestly, we, we live in the greatest time in the history of the world when it comes to doing what you want to do at, at for a living and making a living wage doing it. And honestly, if we don't pursue the things that we want to do for a living, then we're really cheating the people, all the people that came before us because they didn't have that opportunity, right? I mean, we basically now, you can sell, if you want to sell like homegrown tomatoes from your backyard on the internet, you can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're, you're doing a disservice to people who came before maybe and the people who currently are on the earth but living in a place that like we live in the we we essentially as Americans have very little excuses. There's people that have different circumstances, and I've been very lucky, so I can't speak to every person's circumstance. But um, mm-hmm. there's always going to be those those boundaries and and walls you got to break down to get to where you want to be. And I think, to be honest with you, some of the most inspiring people are the ones that had a a crappy start to life and had to really fight for it. And um, I, I didn't have to, and so. Um, you're kind of doing a disservice. Life's too short, especially when it's handed to you to uh, to waste on sitting on the couch watching reruns and you know whatever it might be. There's there's uh, yeah, unless you're passionate about that stuff, I guess, and that's that's fine too. Whatever makes you happy. But um, yeah. I personally get more um, satisfaction from 
feeling like I'm contributing and bettering myself, even if it's small little things. And uh, yeah, there's people all over the world right now that would die to be in any of our situation. And I see people all the time on social media complaining about everything, you know, whether it's client work, projects, this, that, and the other. And um, again, another cliche, but we're lucky to be able to do what we do. And uh, if you don't like it, you can do anything else in the world where no one's doing this for to get rich. So Yeah, totally. And honestly, part of me living where I live rurally, I get this massive perspective where I'll go and get gas in the mornings in my truck mm-hmm. and I'll see these farmers, man, and it's negative whatever degrees and they're they're out doing their thing. And I'm like, man, the hardest the the hardest day in the life of being a designer is nowhere near even a mediocre day in the like one of those guys' worlds. Yeah, they they they're literally breaking their backs. They're gonna they're gonna be paying for it when they're older. They're gonna be feeling it, and and we have a lot of control over what we do. If if you're working for a client you don't like, you know, fire them, get another client. If you're doing work in a sector you don't like, then change change uh, the image you're portraying to the world on the kind of work you want to do. But there are people like farmers where if it's uh, if there's a huge frost and it ruins their crops, they're screwed. You know right. what I mean? Like they don't have that kind of control, and um, yeah, it's it's a yeah we're we're very privileged, and it's um, I love design. I think design can change the world. I think it's very important, but it's also um, it's a luxury. You know, it's, yeah, no doubt. It's it's also it's something that I'm really happy that I came along in the time that I am where I can make it a profession because um, even if I'm not having a title as a designer and somewhere down the line, I'm an entrepreneur doing my own company. I will appreciate and put design at the forefront of whatever that company might be, because I do think it is valuable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, listen, man, uh, I am extremely envious of your talent and tenacity for executing so many of these projects. Being able to finish them is, is awesome. And many of us have these things that are completely unfinished. And it honestly makes me want to pursue about four other ideas I have right now. <laughs> but kind of wrapping up, where can listeners support your work and follow you online? Maybe if there's a home base where they can kind of get to everything. Home base. Where can you get to everything? Um, uh, soon to be lindstromworks.com, I guess. But uh, in the meantime, Twitter, just my name, Brian Lindstrom, with an underscore at the bottom. And then a uh, Instagram, just my name, Brian Lindstrom, at Brian Lindstrom. So no spaces or anything. Very cool. Well, man, listen, I appreciate your time. And uh, we'll definitely, I'll get links up for everything in the show notes uh, for all the the multiple projects that you work on. And uh, best of luck as you continue to uh, to do your own thing, maybe one day and, and push forward. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate your time, Adam. And um, you you're taking on a, an ambitious project with these podcasts that are above and beyond what I've done. So this is, this is a uh, not easy work and to, to get to where you are with your ambitions of a hundred is uh, pretty inspiring. So keep on rocking. I'm enjoying listening to them. Thanks man. I appreciate it. As mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, my next guest is going to be Sloan Kelly. Sloan is a digital strategist uh, and currently serves as executive 
producer for the PGA Tours Digital Properties, where she's been for nearly three years. Uh, she's currently traveling as well as training in new technologies such as virtual reality. So it will be interesting to see how the PGA Tour begins to integrate that type of stuff in the future. So looking forward to talking to her. Big thanks again to Brian Lindstrom for taking time to come aboard the podcast. As he mentioned, you can follow him on Twitter at Brian Lindstrom underscore. That's B R. I-A-N-L-I-N-D-S-T-R-O-M underscore. Uh, and, and also check out some of his work at newbarrick.com. N-E-W-B-A-R-I-C.com. If you're interested in hearing more episodes, then head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to check out the previous interviews or listen to the original halftime episodes where I discuss topics such as business, entrepreneurship, and freelance in the sports industry. As I did mention at the beginning of the podcast, all future halftime episodes will be available to community members only. If you want to support the podcast and essentially vote with your dollars, as Brian and I discussed, you can join the community at makersofsport.com slash community. You will get the halftime episodes, their transcripts, an invitation to the official Makers of Sports Slack channel, which has representation currently right now from the Kansas City Chiefs, Tennessee Titans, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Miami Dolphins, Adidas, New Balance, ESPN, Sports Illustrated. So many different sports brands are definitely represented right now in that community. And in addition, you get Q&As with future former and special guests. Our next Q&A is going to be with episode two guest, Joe Bosack. And then the following Q&A is going to be, as mentioned, with Bethany Heck of EFAS League, as she will be giving us her talk on typography that she did at Creative South. If you don't join the community prior to then, don't worry. Each Q&A is recorded and is available uh, in the community Slack chat. So anytime that you join, you'll have access to Q&As from the past. The podcast is listener-supported and not sponsor-supported. There will never be sponsors on the show. If you get value from the content from the podcasts and its outlets and social media, email, newsletters, or other areas, then please consider supporting the show. Again, I ask that you vote with your hard-earned dollars to support the show by joining the community. And in exchange, you'll get access to the premium content mentioned previously. For those that aren't interested in joining the community at this moment or just for casual listeners, no problem. The interview episodes will always be free forever. If you do miss those halftime episodes and are not planning on signing up for the community at this time, you can sign up for Weekend Reads, which is a weekly newsletter where I write exclusive content and share things that I find interesting for the week, including links or articles to sports business design and technology news. In addition, you will be notified in advance of upcoming guests and get podcast show notes delivered right to your inbox. Makersofsport.com slash email is where you can sign up for that to stay in touch with the future happenings of the podcast. Lastly, please take one to two minutes, head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes, hit the five star and write about your experience with the show. I will always accept likes or ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever application you prefer to listen to podcasts in. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. <laughs>